Shavua Tov, Shavua Tov. It's a beautiful Saturday night here somewhere near Hebron. And I have about two hours till my next shift. And I, like I'm sure so many people, have been asking myself constantly, what can I do? What can I do for the sake of the protection of our soldiers, of our chayalim? What can I do? And you might think, well, you're in the Israeli army. You're doing a lot. Thank God. Thank God I have the merit. But even here, you know, we're not necessarily in the front lines in Aza. And uh, there's a lot of time. And so there's time for me to think about how can I use my brain and my heart to contribute to the Jewish people. And I've had this idea for a very long time called the Amuna series. Um, and that's basically, you know, Amuna, faith in God, faith in Torah, is a very complex thing, something that's hard to articulate exactly why a person believes. But many a time in my life, people have asked me, uh, why do you believe? And um, I always wanted to kind of break it down into a few um, series of different things which bring chizuk, which bring strength. I wouldn't call them the source of my faith in God, but they certainly, when I learn about these things, they give me a boost of energy and strength and belief. So that's what you are currently participating in. I am trying my best to present Torah to the world, to strengthen people's emuna, and if nothing else, it will strengthen my, it already has strengthened my uh, faith, my practice of Torah and mitzvot, and I hope that God is counting this, and I believe that God is counting this Torah that I am sharing and that you are listening to be a a protection for the Jewish people to protect our chayalim and uh, along with all the tefillahs and all the tilim, may this year also uh, protect all of Amisra. All right. So with that introduction, our first class is going to be about the topic of Bible codes or Torah codes. Now, again, I will admit this probably isn't the number one. It's probably not even the top 10 of things on my list, but nonetheless, it does really strengthen my Muna when I hear about it. And it's uh, pretty fascinating and opens up new vistas and ways of looking at the Torah. For me personally, I'm sure many of us are familiar with the Aish Discovery Seminar, which uh, I definitely recommend men for everyone. They do a great job. Um, I wouldn't say it's always presented perfectly um, because who can really be perfect? But I do think, uh, especially on a visual level, something like this, uh, this is an audio podcast, so I can show you on the screen the Torah codes in as beautiful way as they might be able to do. It's also a great book that I've been using, which shows a lot of these Torah codes. And uh, if you want, I'll send you some pictures. But uh, since we're on a podcast uh, audio, I'll do my best to explain it uh, without the visuals. And uh, I'll try my best to also add on uh, at the end of the shear. To answer certain questions that were not ne- that aren't always necessarily uh, answered in the discovery seminar, which are legitimate questions, real questions, and I, I tried my best to also uh, answer those questions. All right. So, Torah codes. Why in the heck would we think that there are codes in the Torah? Well, the truth is, anyone who's been in the base matters, anyone, any Torah scholar knows that this is kind of standard belief in the base Medrash that 
there's, as we say, Shivim Panim Torah, 70 facets to the Torah. And for example, many of us are familiar with Gematriot, where we read the Torah and say it not only ha- means a simpler interpretation, but there's also teachings, uh, allusions, where we can convert the Aleph to mean one, the Bet to mean two, etc., etc. And there's, there's meaning behind this. So that's only one system, Gematriot. But the truth is there are many, many, many hidden layers uh, which traditionally Jews have uh, understood that levels within the Torah. Okay, so this, it really dates back to this concept of Shivim Panam, the, the Torah, Gematriot, you can find them in the Gemara, you can find them in Balaturim famously, you can follow them in many, many uh, Jewish commentaries throughout the ages, and that's really not too shocking for people. But I think the concept of codes, of hidden messages within, by skipping letters in the text, is more novel. So I wanted to begin with a historical overview of, you know, who, who did, did Aish discovery make up this concept or where did it really, where's the evolution? So let's begin with the Vilna Gaon. Every Torah student is familiar that the Vilna Gaon is one of the greatest sages in our history. He lived from 1720 to 1797. Legend has it, he knew the entire Torah by heart at age five. And he lived in the Vilna, of course. And he quotes a sefer called Sifra Titsniuta, which is a Kabbalistic sefer. Actually, amazingly enough, um, on my shift at night on, on Shabbos, a, a friend gave me a sefer. And guess what sefer it was? Sifra Titsniuta. He was saying, how just reading it, even if you don't understand, it uh, brings your neshama to a higher level. So it's, a, I believe, a commentary on the Zohar, an, an ancient Kabbalistic teachings that the Vilna Gaon quotes. And in it, he wrote, all that was, is, and will be is written in the Torah, not merely in a general sense, but the details of every person who has ever lived is encoded in the Torah. Wow, unbelievable claim, saying that Kalman Yonatan, what he's doing on a Saturday night, you know, in 2023, is written in the Torah in codes. Amazing. So I'm, unfortunately, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to be able to prove by the end of this year uh, that it's encoded Kalman Yonatan's life, but, or Jimmy John, or anything, but what we can see from here is that the Vilna Gaon believed there were secret messages in the Torah. Okay? In fact, the story goes that someone asked the Vilna Gaon, yeah, really, everything's in the Torah? Where do we see the Rambam in the Torah? So he opened up Sefer Shemot and the 11th chapter of Genesis discussing when the Jews were leaving Egypt, and in the first letter of each word there, it spells Rambam, which is actually, if you check in the 80,000 different times, we have four letter sequences in the Torah. The only time it's written Rambam, of course, Rambam lived in Egypt, is right there in, uh, what's it called? Right there in uh, the story discussing the Jews leaving Egypt, and it's right there, 
Okay, so that's a story. Beautiful. Um, we'll, we'll get back to that code about the Rambam in a little bit. But what is important for my purposes is to show you that from the Zohar, it seems, to the Vilna Goan, there's this belief that there are encoded messages in by skipping letters, you know, making the text not just words but letters, and we can derive many messages from this. Messages about our lives. What an astounding claim. Let's get into it. There was another rabbi. I'm sure many of us have heard of him. His name is the Ramak. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. He's also famous because he wrote the Tomer Devora, a, a beautiful ethical treatise, which I have the chance to learn uh, with my students sometimes. But he wrote a Kabbalistic work known as Pardes Rimonim. And in Pardes Rimonim, 68a, the Ramak, by the way, the Ramak was the Rebbe of the Arizal, I believe, in Sfat. He was the Rebbe before the Arizal, right at the time of all the greats in Sfat in the, I think, 16th century of Shlomo Alkabitz, of the Alshech. So he was a great, great rabbi. And he had his own unique way of understanding Kabbalah. And the Ramak writes, the knowledge of the secrets of Torah is through combinations, gematriot, numerologies, switching letters, first and last letters, skipping of letters. These matters are powerful, hidden, and enormous secrets. So you'll familiar, forgive me for the sound. It's just our brave soldiers coming back from uh, watching over Hebron, over Shabbos, Parshas Chaisara. Anyways, I hope you can still hear me. The Ramak is teaching us that in the numerologies, in the skipping of letters, he specifically mentions that, and many other mes- uh, hidden messages have enormous secrets, okay? So we've got another great rabbi in our tradition who believes that you can derive things, messages from the secrets. And I just mentioned two more rabbis. In the 13th century, Rabbeinu Bachia was known to have mentioned the concept of skipping 42 letters between words, he talks about this, and famously the Ramban, Nachmanides, also talks about the message, the, how the letters of the Torah spell out names of Hashem, and that the hidden secrets of our lives are written in the Torah. There's a story about his student Amnom who asked him, really? And uh, the Ramban showed him a Pasuk at the end of Parsha Tazinu, which alluded to poor Amnon's life. So there you have it. Many great rabbis, uh, of course, many of them uh, Kabbalistically inclined, who mention this concept of skipping letters and how the entire Torah can be recombined, not just to form words, but a big giant letters. And that if you know how to, you know, understand the skips in the right way, you can derive messages. Okay, beautiful. Now, let's skip to the 20th, early 20th century, I wanted to give an honorable mention to a professor named Ivan Panin. Panin was a Russian mathematician at Harvard University in the early 20th century, like I mentioned, and he actually became a Catholic, devout Catholic, and he knew Hebrew, and he began to study the Bible in its original Hebrew. And one day he decided to experiment and replace the letters of the Torah with numbers. 
and his mathematical mind picked up an elaborate pattern, an unbelievable pattern. And what he found was unbelievable patterns. I'll, I'll give you an example. He found patterns of seven running throughout Kumash. Now, you might ask me, Kalman, that's cool. What does seven have to do with anything? Well, seven, of course, is the main thematic number in Sefer Bereshis, right? Six days of creation, then seven days of Shabbos. So it would make a lot of sense if seven would be a running theme. So what he found, for example, is that there's seven words in the first verse of Bereshis. Okay, pretty cool. 28, i.e. seven times four letters in the verse. Okay, pretty cool. The numerical value of the word bara, the only verb in the verse, is 29 times 7, 203. The first and last letters of every word, gematria, is 1393. 7 times 199, another derivative of 7. And etc., etc. I'm not going to get into every detail, but basically, even this non-Jewish professor studied these codes, and he believed the odds of there being so many patterns by chance was one in something like, I don't remember if it was millions or billions, but extremely, extremely unlikely that it was just a coincidence according to Panin's uh, calculations. One in several, several, several million, maybe billion, I don't remember. Another uh, rabbi, a more modern rabbi, in the early 20th century, Rabbi Pinchas Zalman Hurwitz, also known as the Baal Hafla, researched uh, the occurrence of Hashem's name in the Torah, and he found that, of course, Hashem's name in Yudkid Babke is 26 in Gematria, and guess what? It, it appears 26 times 70, 1820 times. So another derivative of 70 with the exact Gematria of God's name coincidence? He thought not, but uh, truthfully is a little bit of a side topic, but pretty fascinating. Okay. Another just worth mentioning that uh, this theme of sevens, of mentionings of names seven times runs throughout the creation account. For example, you have the word Elohim, God, 35 times, seven times five, earth, 21 times, heaven, Aishamayim, good, tov, day, all in multiples of seven. What are the odds? Okay, so we're seeing that there's different ways of interpreting the Torah, which are beyond the simple text. And there's, we're now moving on to Rabbi Michal Dov Weismandel, who is known as the father of my modern day Torah code study. So. Weissmandel was actually a Holocaust survivor. He actually jumped off of the rails on the way to Auschwitz. And uh, he actually saved a lot of lives. He tried to get the Americans to bomb uh, the, uh, the rails leading to Auschwitz. And um, anyways, he had a genius mathematical mind. And he was inspired by Rabbeinu Bachia. And he decided, you know what? I want to count letters. So he started from the first tough in the Torah, from, of course, the word Bereshis. He counted 49 letters, skips, and guess what? He got the word Vav, and then he skipped another 49 letters, and he got Resh, 
Another 49 letters. Hey. Unbelievable. You skip letters. 49, of course, 7 times 7. 49 is a key word, a key number. And he's got the word Torah, which might allude to the fact that the world, the Torah is the blueprint of creation. He counted a similar, he looked for the same pattern in Shemot. The first time Tuff appears, and unbelievably, it did. 49, and it, once again, it appeared Torah. Pretty amazing. So Weissmandel um, found a lot of interesting, fascinating codes. Uh, another code that he delved into was the one we alluded to before, the Rambam code. So he noticed that in that same chapter 11 of Shmos, where we said Moshe's name is spelled out, there are other uh, interesting things. He said, well, can I find the Rambam's most famous works, Mishnah Torah, right? Um, his magnum opus. And guess what? He did overlaying the Rambam in the story of the Jews leaving Egypt, where, of course, the Rambam lived his life. We have the word Mishnah. And then if you skip down a few, just a few words, you have the word Torah. Unbelievable. So close to each other. And then he counted the amount of letters between Mishnah and Torah. And guess what? 613 spaces between Mishnah and Torah. Of course, what is the six? 613 is the topic of the, what's it called, of, of the Mishnah Torah. Hi, I just unfortunately got word of more casualties, more brave soldiers who passed away uh, in the fighting, brave fighting today. So I just needed to take a moment to rededicate this Torah for the protection of the whole Jewish people. Hi, all right. Anyways, so an unbelievable code. Now, Rav Weissmandel was, you know, really doing this all before computers. He was doing it just by his own brain. He wrote an amazing sefer about all these w- unbelievable codes that he was discovering. In the 70s, a rabbi, actually, I don't know if he was a rabbi back then, but he was a mathematician for sure. Um, no, I don't think he was a rabbi back then. Eliyahu Rips and another professor at Hebrew University, I believe, Doron Whitesum, decide they were blown away by this book that Weissmandel wrote, blown away by the finds. Rips himself was a genius mathematician who uh, figured out how to disbunk a universally accepted mathematical theory in a Russian jail. So he was no amateur. And uh, they decided to start doing experiments with computers to see if they could find a higher degree of correlation than one would expect when it comes to words in the Torah. Uh, I'm not, I'm sorry. Let, let me be more clear. Okay, at this point, it's very important for me to point out that in any big text, if you ask a computer to find words, when you skip letters, you will almost for sure, you will you will always find words. And anyone who's done a crossword puzzle knows that's not so rare. So what were they looking for? They were looking for in a higher degree that would be expected of skips, and specifically 
if it's a very, very unlikely that this, there would be so many skips in the same, in an area in the Torah which talks about that topic, well, that's just unbelievable, right? To give a analogy, if I run into my friend on Ben Yehuda Street one day, that is not so unbelievable. I mean, it happens. You run into people every once in a while. So too, there will be skips which spell out stuff in any big text. But if every day or every other day even, I happen to run into the same guy in the same place in Ben Yehuda. I run into a guy named Yehuda on Ben Yehuda Street. So that's, ex- and it's exactly at the same time of the day. It's at 10 a.m. So that's going to start me asking questions. What's going on? Why is that? Maybe Ben lives right on Ben Yehuda Street. But there's got to be something to it. It can't just be a coincidence that every day I run into Ben. So that's, that's what we're trying to find out. Is there a higher degree of probability than one would expect of skips spelling out meaningful things? And is it, if it's happening in an area of the Torah related to that topic, well, that's just fascinating. So that's what they wanted to find out. Is it statistically unique, all of these skips? Okay, I hope that point was very clear. Now, so what they did, I mean, they saw a lot of amazing things. They wanted to start doing experiments because that's how science works. You don't just look for stuff. You have to see, oh, if this is true, so this and this should happen. So they said, if there is something to these codes, we should find in an area in the, in the Torah related topically to Aaron, Aaron's name. So what they did is in the first chapter of Sefer Vayikra, of Leviticus, which talks about the appointing of priests, but interestingly enough does not mention Aaron, will they find Aaron's name very, very often? And that's where they searched. And indeed, they found Aaron's name recorded 25 times in that short segment and in equidistant skips right? Three letters, three letters, five letters, five letters, whatever it is. And then they took not Aleph, Hey, Resh, Nun, but other patterns of, of those four, same four letters, and they saw how many times they would appear in that same text. And it was far, far less. So it was on an average of eight times other skips of those same four letters, but our own 25 times. They calculated the odds of that happening were 1 in 2,666,818. Wow. Pretty unbelievable. They did the same thing for Hanukkah. Right? Of course, Hanukkah is a rabbinical holiday. And they took key words related to Hanukkah and tested and said, oh, we think in this part of the Torah, it's likely we're going to find words related to Hanukkah like Maccabi, Chashmonai, Yehuda, Chet Yamim. And again, in a statistically unbelievable, what are the odds? One in millions of chances, they found many, many hits, much more than one would have expected. Okay. So they were convinced. They said, there's something to this. Wow. Unbelievable. So what they then did is reached out to another famous mathematician, his name was Mr. Michelson. And Mr. Michelson was an, an atheist, a skeptic. 
And they said, we got to get somebody who doesn't buy into Judaism to buy into this and see if it's true. So Michelson said, I'll try it out. He took three days. He studied their findings. He was blown away. And he concluded, it must have been aliens. Aliens must have written the Torah because it's way too unlikely for this to have happened by chance. But he didn't want to admit that it was from a god. So someone must have put these codes into the Torah. In any case, they went on with their uh, studies and um, they decided that they need to get these statistics published in a very popular, um, what's it called? A very popular statistical science journal, which is considered maybe the number one statistical science journal. And if they publish it, people will start taking us seriously. So they called them up and said, okay, we have these unbelievable statistics. What can we do to get it published? So the people, when they heard about the topic of codes embedded into the Torah, they uh, were not so happy. They weren't really in the mood. They thought they'd be the laughing stock when this gets disproved and they put it in their paper. So they said, listen, you helped us craft a study, you know, a tryout, and and, and we'll do it together. And if it reaches whatever, you know, criteria you need, whatever's reasonable, then you'll, you'll publish it. So now, in general, the standards they need to publish something in this statistical science journal is it needs to be 1 in 20 that there's a fluke. Meaning 19 out of 20, there's something to this, but if 1 in 20, that's good enough odds to publish it. For something that's uh, very uh, important, it would be 1 in 50. It will only, let's say, medical things, things that are life-saving, and there needs to be very, very small chance that this is by chance. For this study for codes in the Torah, they required a one in a thousand uh, chance for them to publish it in their book. That's what they said. So, um, you know, Whitsum and now Rosenberg is on the team, said, you know what? We'll do it. And they came up with the following idea. We're going to take an encyclopedia, a standard encyclopedia. We're going to take great rabbis and we're going to take their day of death, written in the encyclopedia, the the year that they died, and we're going to predict that written next to the name of the rabbis, we're going to also find the year that they they passed away in a way that is much, you know, the odds of that happening are very, very low. And that's what they did. And they ran the study. It's called the Great Rabbis uh, study. They took 34 random rabbis and the odds that they found of them, they fa- basically they found indeed many rabbis and the days of their yard site were right next to each other. And a lot of times there was other, other things right next to their age and their name was the name of their books, etc., etc. Their most famous books, I think that was also part of the study. I believe the odds of that being a fluke of so many rabbis and so many ages right next to each other was 1 in 62,500. They come back to the statistical science and say, okay, got to publish our studies. 
They say, uh, not so fast. We're going to only study, you know, publish it if Percy Diconis gives his okay. Who is Percy Diconis? He was the head of the Skeptic Society and also known as the, the top statistician, someone who had debunked many a theory. And if he gives his okay, then we'll, we'll publish your works. So they come to Mr. Diconis. He looks at their works. Says, okay, very cute. Here's what you got to do. Take the same amount of letters in the Torah. 305,000 and whatever it is exactly. And take that same letters in Moby Dick. And search for those same codes, for the names. And they search. And of course they found some, you know, some words. But they found nothing of statistical um, comparison. Nothing. He said, ah, interesting. Uh, let's try it in another book. So they tried on War and Peace. They tried Moby Dick. They said, maybe it's, let's try it in Hebrew. Maybe it's about Hebrew. They tried it in Hebrew. They tried Achnasat um, Kala from Shai Agnon. They tried ancient Hebrew. Nothing had any statistical significance. They didn't find any codes in the text whatsoever. Only in the Torah they find these codes. So, at a certain point, they come back to Mr. Diconis and they said, listen, this is going to go on forever. How many tests do we need to run of, you know, controls where there's no specific, nothing statistically significant about it? How many do we have to run before you'll believe us? So he says, well, we need a million if you do a million controls and nothing comes up with any statistical significance, then I'll give my okay. So they went home and started running the computers. Right Back then, computers were slow. For three and a half years, from 1990 to 1994, they ran one million tests, one million different books, and not one of them had anything of any statistical import. And Percy Diconis had no choice but give his okay. And the article indeed was published in the Journal of Statistical Science. Unbelievable. Now, at this point, everyone was blown away. Everyone wants a piece of this article to disprove it, to disbunk it. Right? If there was codes written into the Torah, hidden codes, that ha- might have some theological um, import. So everyone's trying to disbunk it. Eventually, all the professors are looking into it. Eventually, an article is written that claims to disbunk the science. And basically, they found what they called five critical flaws in the theories. And basically, the main idea is that they found four rabbis who were the dates were written incorrectly in the encyclopedia. They actually hired someone to go to the actual graves, get the right dates. And they also had some sort of flaw with the math. So, you know, for a subject as sensitive as this, even, you know, a few switches could tweak all the evidence and could make it statistically significant when it's really not. And they're they basically claiming that you tweaked the odds, you changed things around to be statistically significant. And, um, and that's it. Now, at this point, 
rips with some, they say, all right, let's try it. And they took the new dates that they had found and they switched around the, the statistic, the math in it a little bit. And they ran it again. And this time they found even more unbelievable codes. The odds of such success in these results was again one in over a million. So much, much, much more. Wow. Now that they had the more accurate dates. Unbelievable. They called them back. They said, no, new, publish our, our new statistics. And the editor said, no, well, we changed our minds. And uh, we don't want to publish it anymore. But to this day, if you go online and go on Wikipedia, they'll uh, most likely tell you about the second article where it was disbunked, forgetting to mention that the disbunking was disbunked. But uh, at that point, uh, people weren't paying attention anymore. And uh, people, uh, and uh, you know, those who believed in it kept studying it. In fact, there's a guy named Harold Gans. And Gans was originally a skeptic. And he started studying the works. And he was so blown away that he started being a, a chassid of the codes. And he started doing codes which were more, uh, less, less issues. For example, he, because the names of rabbis, there are different ways of spelling it, so it can make it complicated. But uh, names of shas, of the different tractates in the Talmud, there's no dispute about that. Everyone agrees. So he said, what are the odds that there's going to be a higher, you know, statistically uh, probability of finding these codes of shas in, in specific places? And again, one in millions, the odds of what he found. He tested for the 70 nations of the world in the chapters in, in Noah. Uh, if we would find allusions to the nations of today, and indeed, unbelievable findings. And nowadays, you can find many, many, many Sfarim, Computora, people who dedicate their lives with, uh, to, to finding very fascinating uh, codes in the Torah. Okay, now, I wanted to just mention a few of these codes, but I do recommend, if you're curious, you know, go online, and uh, if you want, I can even send me an email. I'll send you some pictures of some amazing codes. There is new ones coming out all the time. Um, one of the famous ones is the Holocaust Code, where in the portion of the Torah, which talks about hastarat panim, of God hiding his face after the Jewish people abandoned them, many, many unbelievable allusions to Hitler, Yamach Shemo, to Eichmann, to Gas, um, to Germany, to the Tsar, to the enemy, and all of this in an area of the Torah related to that. Another uh, code which, is, which became rel- relatively famous was the Twin Tower Codes. After September 11th, they looked and they found Migdalei To'om, Twin Towers, uh, the date in which it happened, um, and many similar things, all in an area of the Torah which, which was talking about the Egel Azav and the 3,000 people who passed away there. And of course, we know there's about 3,000 people who died on September 11th. So you understand that, uh, you know, many, many people are looking after historical events happen to try to see did the Torah already predict that in advance. So those are just two famous examples. There's literally thousands of examples nowadays of this type of stuff. Now, a few important, important uh, points that must be 
made. First of all, um, there's a book called The Bible Codes by Michael Drosnan. Now, Bible Codes, what he tried to do is predict things which will happen in the future. And he may have gotten it right once or twice, but the problem is he also got it wrong a few times. So this is a good proof of what we are not meant to be doing with Bible codes. No one in our tradition said we're supposed to read the text to be a prophet, to tell us what to do. Um, rather, the concept is that we're supposed to derive chizuk, strengthening of ideas which we already kind of believe in, but just like gematria, being mechazik, these things, to show that it's all from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but not to predict things in the future. So this is not endorsing or condoning Bible codes. In fact, I think it does a lot more damage than good because people throw out the, the, whole, the whole concept because when people use it in ways which are, not, uh, which are not true, so then they throw away the whole thing. So we're not talking about Michael Drosnan's Bible codes. Uh, I think Drosnan predicted the world would be, there'd be Armageddon in 2002, so thank God he was wrong about that. Another um, very, very important point to be made, like I mentioned, you can find words in skipping letters throughout the Torah in any text. So Christians can misuse this and say, oh, look, it has, you know, Jesus or how they'll refer to him in Hebrew. And they'll find, I don't know if they do, but I, I imagine them and if Muslims wanted to, they can find all sorts of codes. So that's why it's so important to stress that you can find words is not so surprising. What we need is serious statisticians who are asking what are the odds of us finding this amount of skips in a particular area of the Torah. And if it's statistically significant, if it happens way more than one would expect, then that's a wow moment. But just to find a bunch of words is actually not so impressive in any large text. So that's an extremely important point. And that is also why I'll be completely honest that I wouldn't completely, personally, base my faith on Torah codes. And that is because the naked eye can see some amazing things through the Torah codes. You can see amazing messages, but I won't necessarily know if it's statistically significant. I'm reliant on those statisticians who know a lot more about this topic. And I think we all are, unless you're a serious statistician. Apparently, it takes years to really be able to handle this. Now, I happen to, you know, know some of these statisticians and just I get a vibe from them, from the dozens of them, that they're not liars. They're serious scientists. They're putting their careers on the line. I don't think they're lying to us when they say that it's unbelievably statistically significant what we find in the Torah. I think they're telling the truth, but it's a nuanced type of thing. It's not something that the naked eye will necessarily be able to know. And that is why, you know, it's hard. I basically would be basing my faith on statisticians, trustworthy statisticians. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not, it's not something I can see with my own eyes. And I do think that's, uh, that's a legitimate critique. But uh, the truth is many things in life we rely upon other people, doctors, scientists. So if, uh, if they seem to be credible, then it seems to me uh, relevant to... to it's shaykh to rely upon their uh, ages. Um, what else? Okay, this is a, a very, very, another, a last important point, perhaps, in terms of the, a question 
that many skeptics have asked. Our Torah that we have as Ashkenazim differs slightly from Torah scrolls that are of Yemenite import. There are, if I'm not mistaken, nine differences, almost all of them relating to vavs and whether there is a, an, a vav or not a vav, whether it's chaser or maleh, and one actual letter variant, the word daka, if it has an aleph or, um, or hey. So the question is, wouldn't this mess up all of the studies? Because they only did this on the Ashkenazi Torah, these studies, at least originally. So if there are differences, if, the, if perhaps the real text that Hashem gave Moshe is the Yemenite Torah, so wouldn't that significantly mess with the data? So that's a very good question. But statisticians have answered that there's so few differences. Again, some of them have a vav and some of them don't have a vav. Only a few differences throughout the entire Torah and about one every 25,000 letters. So it would still not, it would still, it would not be such, it would not mess up all the, the stats, basically. To think about it simply, think about the R own code, right? So in that 166 letter skip code, in those 166 letters, if there was a vav or not a vav, it's true that it could mess with some of the calculations. But uh, the odds are there's no change. There's no vav difference because it's only 166 letters. Again, it's only one in every 25,000 letters that there is a textual variant. Some of them could also cancel each other out. And um, the truth is, if we didn't have these textual variants, it's perhaps it wouldn't be one in a million. It would be more like one in trillions. Perhaps the odds would be even more unbelievable that you have so many R-owns in that one place, so many more codes, if we had the exact Masoda. Perhaps, perhaps not. The way I understand it, and I think this is, uh, again, another significant point, is that Hashem runs the world. There's Hashkacha Pratis. So if the Torah that we got into our hands, that we read every week on Shabbos, is the, exact, is the Torah that we have, and that was the Ratzon Hashem. God wanted that to be our Torah. Regardless of if it's exactly, you know, if there's a, f- a few vavs that are different uh, from the Torah that was given at Mount Sinai. But God wanted us to give this Torah, and that's why this Torah is proving to be uh, still st- statistically unbelievable. There's still these codes in a much an unbelievable type of way. And uh, I was also, when pondering this issue, thinking about the fact that if any idiot could just see, wow, there's codes all over the place and not even arguable, then maybe there wouldn't be any free will. But instead, we have these, uh, you know, uh, one who looks into the issue and truly seeks the truth and you read a lot of articles can see, wow, there really might be something to this. And one who wants to look for uh, reasons to not believe might just get uh, swept away by the cynics and say, oh, there's all a bunch of rubbish. So at the end of the day, it comes down to a person's free will, our choice, whether we want to believe or not to believe. Um, Like so many of these Amuna things, I think one who's looking for the truth can find reason for chizuk, reason for strengthening of our belief. And one who's looking to be cynical has reason to be cynical, or maybe cynical is not the right word. One, One who's looking for problems 
can find problems. But uh, I think if you we really open up our minds and hearts to see all these unbelievable codes, it can mechazik uh, our belief that God wrote the Torah, that he perhaps put these codes just for our generation, our computer generation, to find these unbelievable codes, to know that there is someone who's controlling the world, that the Torah is divine, and to give us that hug from above, to know that everything that happens is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's all about, that's about all I have to say on this wonderful topic. It took me many hours to research um, because it's a, it's a complex topic. Have, I, I have, uh, I guess I do have more to say, but uh, you know, it's, a, it's been a long enough sheer. So if you have any questions, please send me a WhatsApp, send me an email, keithflax at gmail.com. Uh, K-E-I-T-H-F-L-A-K-S at gmail.com. Happy to send you some interesting articles on this topic. I hope, please God, it will whet your appetite to look more into the topic. You can go on YouTube and just write uh, codes and you can see that presentation uh, from Asia Torah. You can go to the Discovery Seminar. And uh, I hope this uh, will open some people up to new venues of seeing the power, the beauty, the amazingness of our Torah HaKadosha. All right, signing out from somewhere near Hebron on this beautiful night. May Hashem protect all of you and all of our people.